Welcome to Legal Ethics in the News, a podcast series from the New York City Bar Association featuring Stephen Gillers and Barbara S. Gillers, discussing legal ethics issues making headlines in the legal or mainstream media. Stephen is the Elihu Root Professor of Law, and Barbara is an adjunct professor of law, both at New York University School of Law. In this episode, Mr. Jack Smith goes to Washington, explaining the conflict issues and the special counsel rules as they apply in the Justice Department's investigation of Donald Trump. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the city bar. Here are Barbara Gillers and Stephen Gillers. Greetings. I'm Barbara Gillers. And I'm Stephen Gillers. This is our podcast, Legal Ethics in the News. Every few weeks, we will discuss current legal ethics issues in the news. The issues may come from a bar ethics opinion, a court case, a story in the legal or popular press, or a suggestion from you. You can send suggestions to this address, Legal Ethics Podcast at nycbar.org. We'll post some of the sources we mention in our podcast or citations to them on the City Bar site accompanying the podcast. You can also get our podcasts wherever you get your other podcasts, Google, Spotify, Apple, elsewhere. For this, our 20th podcast, we discuss Attorney General Garland's appointment of Jack Smith as a special counsel to investigate Donald Trump in connection with the January 6th insurrection and the removal of White House documents to Mar-a-Lago. His decision is being presented in the news as a choice. Wasn't it? Well, maybe not. Maybe conflict rules required Garland to do it. Which rules are those? Under the McDade Amendment, which is at 28 U.S.C. Section 530B, Garland is governed by the Washington, D.C. rules where he practices. What do those rules say? D.C. Rule 1.7b.4 says that a lawyer, quote, shall not represent a client with respect to a matter if the lawyer's professional judgment on behalf of the client will be or reasonably may be adversely affected by the lawyer's own financial business property or personal interests. What about the the ABA rule? It's essentially the same. The ABA model rule 1.7A2 says that a lawyer is conflicted, quote, if there is a significant risk that the representation of one or more clients will be materially limited by a personal interest of the lawyer. Okay, okay, so how would you describe the conflict here? Well, Garland's boss is President Biden, who is likely to run for president in 2024, or at least has not ruled out doing so. Trump is running, Biden, who can fire Garland, has an interest in weakening Trump, which an indictment, of course, may do. So on the one hand, Garland must not be influenced by Biden's interests. But on the other hand, it could appear that he will be influenced, even if not consciously. Conversely, I suppose, Biden might benefit if Trump is not indicted. 
which increases Trump's chances of becoming the nominee. Biden might see Trump as the easiest Republican to beat. But you don't really think that Garland's decision here would be influenced by a wish to please Biden, do you? Not in fact at all. But these conflict rules are meant to encourage public confidence in the objectivity of DOJ's investigation. This is not about whether Garland would actually violate his oath. When it comes to prosecutorial power, appearances count a lot, especially when the possible defendant is a former president. You said that the D.C. conflict rules govern Garland's practice in Washington, but what about the law? Yeah, the law requires the attorney general, quote, to promulgate rules and regulations which require the disqualification of any officer or employee of the Department of Justice from participation in a particular investigation or prosecution if such participation may result in a personal, financial, or political conflict of interest or the appearance thereof. And the Attorney General has done that. C-28 CFR section 45.2. So it, it seems like they're saying that Garland had to appoint a special counsel. Well, I'm saying that once Trump announced and Biden said that he may announce, appointing a special counsel may have been the best decision. The problem here would disappear if the attorney general were elected or had job security, wouldn't it? then Biden could not fire him. Well, theoretically, yes. I ask because in my research on ways to protect DOJ from political interference, I, I learned that in 43 states and Washington, D.C., voters elect the attorney general. Tennessee's Supreme Court picks its attorney general. And in Maine, the legislature does. That leaves five states, Alaska, Connecticut, Hawaii, New Jersey, and Wyoming, where the governor appoints the attorney general. But three of those states do not allow the governor to fire the attorney general at will. Instead, they provide various forms of job security. The research is cited in the material accompanying this podcast Anyway, as you say, this is theoretical, which raises the question, what if Garland does have a conflict, but chooses to ignore it? So Mr. Smith does not go to Washington. What then? Well, here's how the issue would arise. If Trump is indicted by the Garland Justice Department with no special counsel, we might expect Trump to challenge the indictment on the ground of Garland's conflict. Prosecutors have been removed when a conflict appears to prevent them from doing their job objectively. That's rare. Well, it is rare, and it would be a sideshow here, but a sideshow that would go to the Supreme Court, which will take time. Remember, Trump's strategy is delay. Trump's lawyers could cite the failure to appoint a special counsel as harmful to Trump and a reason to dismiss any indictment. Okay, but 
The conflict does not disappear if there's a special counsel. Garland will still be the decider. That's true. But constitutionally, either Biden or Garland must be the decider, and it won't be Biden. No legal ethics rule can override that. How independent can Jack Smith actually be when you come right down to it? Well, more than you might think. Compare Archibald Cox, who was the first special prosecutor in Watergate. There were no special counsel rules at the time. Nixon instructed the attorney general and the deputy attorney general to fire him. Why didn't Nixon just do it himself? Well, because Nixon wasn't the one who appointed Cox, he seemed to think, probably correctly, that Attorney General Elliot Richardson or Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus had to do it, but they refused. Right, right, right. I remember now, Solicitor General Robert Bork fired Cox after Richardson and Ruckelshaus quit. Yeah, that was the famous Saturday Night Massacre. Cox's position was not safe when he got too close to Nixon. Yeah, except look look at what happened next. The president was forced to accept the appointment of a new special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, which led to Nixon's downfall. What, what about Ken Starr, who was appointed to investigate Bill Clinton? Well, Starr had the most job protection. He was called an independent counsel. He was appointed by a three-judge court under a law that has since expired. Removing Starr would have been practically impossible. And the Supreme Court upheld that law in Morrison versus Olson. So what, what job protection does Jack Smith have? Well, he doesn't have as much as Starr, but he has more than Cox. How, how so? DOJ regulations provide, quote, the special counsel shall not be subject to the day-to-day supervision of any official of the department. However, the attorney general may request that the special counsel provide an explanation for any investigative or prosecutorial step and may, after review, conclude that the action is so inappropriate or unwarranted under established departmental practices that it should not be pursued. In conducting that review, the attorney general would be of great weight to the views of the special counsel. Can can Smith be fired? Well, yes, in theory. The regulations provide, quote, the attorney general may remove a special counsel for misconduct, dereliction of duty, incapacity, conflict of interest, or for other good cause, including violation of departmental policies. The attorney general shall inform the special counsel in writing of the specific reason for his or her removal. And I should add, of course, that if the attorney general finds that a prosecutorial decision is, quote, inappropriate, quote, or if he fires the special counsel, he has to explain his action to the chairs and ranking members of the Judiciary Committees. Let's assume that Smith was thoroughly investigated before Garland chose to appoint him, which I think we must do. It's it's hard to imagine either of those eventualities. But explain something you said earlier about Garland having to be the decider. The reason I ask is that doing so puts him back in the chain of command, so, so to speak. Wasn't the goal to remove him 
from responsibility because of a conflict? Well, yes, but there are constitutional limits. Under a 1926 Supreme Court decision, Myers versus United States, Congress cannot give presidential appointees any job security. If the head of a department, like Garland, makes the appointment, some job protection is possible, but the appointee cannot be a free agent. In Morrison versus Olson and United States versus Nixon, the court concluded that the attorney general retained sufficient power over the appointee's work to satisfy the Constitution. The D.C. Circuit followed this precedent in a challenge to the appointment of Robert Mueller. It wrote that because the attorney general could rescind Mueller's appointment or amend it to eliminate the, quote, for cause, quote, limitations on removal, Mueller, quote, effectively serves at the pleasure of an executive branch officer who was appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate. In other words, Jack Smith has to be tethered, at least on the organizational chart, to the White House or a presidential appointee like Garland, is that it? Yes. This is the theory of the unitary executive. In 2020, in Celia Law versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, quote, under our Constitution, the executive power, all of it, is vested in a president who must take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So I recall that the president wanted to fire the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, who was a presidential appointee, before his term expired and without having to show cause, even though the legislation that created the position required cause. The court cited various provisions of the Constitution for finding that the president's power to fire the director could not be restricted at all. But at bottom, the court seemed to rely on democratic theory. Yeah, and Collins versus Yellen, a year later, also relied on democratic theory. The case involved a challenge to statutory job protection for the head of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, a presidential appointee. Justice Alito wrote that the job protection interfered with the president's removal power, saying, quote, the removal power helps the president maintain a degree of control over the subordinates he needs to carry out his duties as the head of the executive branch. And it works to ensure that these subordinates serve the people effectively and in accordance with the policies that the people presumably elected the president to promote. In addition, because the president, unlike agency officials, is elected, Alito continued, this control is essential to subject executive branch actions to a degree of electoral accountability. Well, let's say that the president doesn't like the way that Jack Smith is going about his job and wants to get rid of him. Um, after all, Smith is exercising executive power. What can the president do? 
Well, since the Attorney General appointed the special counsel, the thinking goes, only the Attorney General can fire him. The President would have to get the Attorney General to fire Smith, and if he refuses, the President would have to fire the Attorney General and appoint someone more compliant, as Nixon did. Which brings us back to the Saturday Night Massacre. What do we say to someone who suggests that the special counsel law is a bit like a Rube Goldberg contraption? It offers a more complicated path to do something that could be done simply while solving no problems. It just adds more complexity. Well, that complexity gives Smith some protection. The regulations provide, quote, subject to the limitations in the following paragraphs, the special counsel shall exercise within the scope of his or her jurisdiction the full power and independent authority to exercise all investigative and prosecutorial functions of any United States attorney. And the United States attorney can indict without getting approval from the attorney general or anyone at at Maine Justice, as DOJ's Washington office is called, does that mean that Smith can indict Trump without even telling Garland in advance? Well, the regulations also say that, quote, the attorney general may request that the special counsel provide an explanation for any investigative or prosecutorial step and conclude that it should not be pursued. So Garland will have the final say. Which makes Smith little more than an advisor to Garland, an informed and experienced advisor, but an advisor nonetheless. We're back to square one. Well, maybe not. Smith has to write a final report. The regulations say that, quote, at the conclusion of the special counsel's work, he or she shall provide the attorney general with a confidential report explaining the prosecution or declination decisions reached by the special counsel, close quote. In that report, we can expect that Smith will defend any decision to or not to prosecute Trump. If he decides not to prosecute it will be nearly impossible for Garland to overrule him. Doing so would buttress Trump's witch hunt claim. And accepting Smith's decision not to charge will also give Garland cover for criticism from the left. And alternatively, if Smith recommends an indictment, it will be nearly as difficult for Garland to reject his advice and not indict. And accepting Smith's decision will give Garland cover for criticism by the right. Will Smith's report be made public? Well, the rules don't require it, but Garland has the power to release it and probably will. Recall the Mueller report. But if Trump is indicted, Garland will wait to avoid unfair pretrial publicity. So you're saying that as long as Smith's conclusions are careful and supported legally and factually, Garland will be under some pressure, maybe a lot, to accept them, though he doesn't have to accept them. 
which means that Smith has more power than might appear on a casual first look. Whatever happens by following Smith's recommendation, Carlin will be insulated from criticism. Yeah, and more so than if there were no special counsel. But in the current environment, Garland will be criticized whatever happens. Reading the tea leaves, it seems to me that Garland must have been close to indicting Trump when he decided to appoint Smith. If after all these months of investigation, Garland had decided not to indict, he would not have felt the need to appoint a special counsel to validate that choice. I think that inference is most compelling. Well, that's our podcast for today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find citations and other materials mentioned in this podcast at the program's page at nycbar.org slash podcasts. Have you seen or heard a topic in the news that you think the Gillers should consider covering? Email legalethicspodcast at nycbar.org. The Gillers do not provide ethics advice to individual lawyers. Lawyers admitted to practice in New York with a question about their own prospective conduct under the New York rules may receive informational guidance by calling the City Bar's Ethics Hotline at 212-382-6663. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was recorded on November 21st, 2022, and produced by Alex Cardaris and Eric Friedman.